stories to you. Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. This session, Toxic Truths, was recorded at our 2022 festival and includes Emily Bitto and Diana Reid. Your host is Amy Lovett. Hello, welcome to 2022 Newcastle Writers Festival. It's so nice to finally be here after a couple of years. I'm delighted to be here today um, in this room where a decade ago almost I was a fresh-faced volunteer walking around with the roaming mic and now I get to sit here with two of my favourite authors so don't give up on your dreams kids. <laughs> the Newcastle Writers Festival acknowledges that we are meeting on the unceded land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and continuing relationship to the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. My name is Amy Lovett and I'm one of the emerging guest curators of this year's Writers' Festival. I'm also a writer. I have a PhD in creative writing from the University of Newcastle and I'm the founder of Secret Book Stuff, which is a social enterprise and online bookshop that's all about championing a love of literature. Welcome to Toxic Truths. I'm here with Emily Bitto, author of the Stella Prize winning The Strays and the recent Wild Abandon. This beautiful book just here. And uh, Diana Reid, um, whose debut novel Love and Virtue came out in 2021 as well. These are both down in the bookshop. <laughs> Just pointing out the um, matching book cover and top. There we go. Photo opportunity. Uh, both of these authors have received critical acclaim for their evocative new coming-of-age novels which dissect relationships, power and moral responsibility. So before I formally introduce these two incredible writers, some quick housekeeping. Please turn your mobile phones to silent if you haven't already and if you take photos, please turn off the flash but feel free to share on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter is New Writers Fest with two W's and the hashtag is NWF2022. Also, due to the festival's COVID safe plan, we won't be having audience questions today, but last week I did a little Instagram question shout out on the Secret Book Stuff Instagram and got some really good questions. Um, so hopefully they're the ones that you're already thinking of anyway. And also you can just follow Emily and Diana down to the festival bookshop on the ground floor and get your book signed and ask them all your burning questions. Okay, so Emily Bitto is a Melbourne-based writer of fiction, poetry and non-fiction. She has a Master's in Literary Studies and a PhD in Creative Writing from the University of Melbourne. Her debut novel, The Strays, was the winner of the 2015 Stella Prize. Her fiction, poetry and non-fiction has appeared in various publications including Mianjin, The Age, The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, The Big Issue and The Sydney Morning Herald. In 2018, she was awarded a six-month Australia Council International Residency in Rome to work on her second novel and debut poetry collection. She's been teaching creative writing for over a decade and is currently a tutor at the Faber Writing Academy. She's also the co-owner of Carlton Wine Bar Heart Attack and Vine. Please join me in welcoming Emily. Diana Reid is a Sydney-based writer who graduated from the University of Sydney last year with a Bachelor of Arts first class. Was it last year? No, we need to update that. It was the end yeah. of 2019. So I suddenly had a thought. It's like ages ago. <laughs> Three years ago? Three years ago. Um, with a Bachelor of Arts first class honours philosophy laws. So in January 2020, her career in theatre was off to a promising start. The musical she co-wrote and produced, 1984 The Musical, debuted and she was set to direct and write theatre performances in Sydney and over to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. When COVID-19 saw the cancellation of global theatre, she decided she'd spend her time in shutdown writing a manuscript, as you do. Love and Virtue is her debut novel. Please join me in welcoming Diana. Okay, so I know we've talked the pandemic to death the last couple of years, and I am sorry about this, but as both of your books came out late in 2021, I assume you'd at least started writing them by the time lockdown swept the globe two years ago. So I'd love you to take us back to that time in, in 2020, so almost two years ago now. Um, what did your lives look like, and where in the novel writing process were you? Maybe we'll start with you, Diana, because as your bio mentioned, 2020 looked pretty different to what you expected. Yeah, and so did 2021, I should say. So 
I, I suppose my answer to this question is probably unusual because I, I wouldn't have written the book if it weren't for the pandemic. Um, I sort of found myself with nothing to do. And so, yeah, I decided to, I sort of thought that it would be cool to write a book like before I died. Um, and so then... Of COVID. Or just, no, like in my lifetime, I suppose. Um, so yeah, when, um, when COVID happened and I had nothing else to do, I was like, oh, well, if I can't write it in these conditions, then I'm not capable of it. Um, and then in 2021, there was also another long lockdown. So I've um, like never really written in non-pandemic conditions, um, which is its own kind of problem because I, I can't like rely on a plague <laughs> to get some work done. And Emily, you were pretty deep in writing Wild Abandon um, by that point a couple of years ago. So what was happening for you and um, how did it affect or not affect the novel writing process? I was actually um, in the kind of editing phase. So I'd signed up the book with my publisher and then was doing the kind of structural edit. It was actually really interesting for me. I think it was really good because the long lockdown for me kind of exploded a fantasy that I had always kind of harboured of imagine all I had to do was write um, because I've always, you know, worked in a bar and done tutoring at the same time and juggling a million other different things and, you know, the bar totally sort of shut down and I didn't have to be there and I was just stuck at home and... It was not productive for me. I mean, it was, you know, I got the edit done, but, um, yeah, it really, to me, it kind of felt very stale and it made me realise that, you know, there are periods where you want to be kind of denning and, and just sitting there every day with the manuscript, but it's necessary to have the opportunity to kind of bring some fresh air in and, you know, have a life feeding the work as well. Um, so it was actually really, really good for me for that reason because I feel like I probably would have always kind of harboured that fantasy if I hadn't gone through that and now I've, I won't. I sort of feel like you just have to do it, you have to make it part of life. Um, I don't want to be in a cell writing. That's no longer my fantasy. <laughs> So um, when both these books were sent to me last year, I inhaled them both. So Emily's is with um, Alan and Unwin and Diana's is with Ultimo Press. And um, through Seeker Bookstuff, we get sent a lot of books. And unfortunately, we don't always get to read them all and we have to divide and conquer. But I, both of yours went straight to the top of the pile for different reasons. Um, so in a few sentences, for those who haven't read them yet, could you tell us what your books are about without maybe giving away too much because we want you to go down and buy them? Diana, do you want to go first? Sure. So Love and Virtue is an Australian campus novel that looks at issues of sex, power and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. Great pitch. Excellent you. elevator pitch. I said that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Wild Abandon follows a young, heartbroken Australian man, uh, Will, 22. He's just gone through his first devastating breakup and he basically just drops everything, flees the country and goes to the US. He starts off in New York where he basically goes on a bender um, and then by a sort of fate or random chance ends up in a small town in Ohio where, because uh, he runs out of money, he ends up working for a guy called Wayne Gage who has a private zoo of exotic animals and things get a lot darker from there. Also a great pitch. Thank you both. <laughs> um, so I'd love you both to take me back to the, the very beginnings of both of those ideas. So Emily, I know you've spoken before about Wild Abandon and how it was partly inspired by you working in the bar with um, a lot of young men who have this vision of that masculine journey to the States instead of to Europe, um, which is really interesting. And then also partly because of the, the real life story that it's based on but I won't say the name of the person it's based on because I made the mistake of googling that story and then it ruined the ending um so don't do that but yeah could you talk a bit more about the seed of inspiration for the book yeah I mean I feel like with both this novel and the first one there's been sort of multiple seeds that you know I kind of know I want to write about but then it's about trying to find a way to kind of tie them all together um Probably the very first seed was this news story I read 
that was a true story about a guy who had a private zoo in the States. This was pre-Tiger King. I was quite pissed off when Tiger <laughs> King came out. But um, at least it kind of gives people a sense of, you know, this is actually a real world that exists in the States. I think otherwise... I, I just had no idea that this was a world that existed and it was totally sort of um, shocking to me. But something in that story, that idea of kind of owning large numbers of kind of wild animals um, in captivity just it, it got into my brain and it, and it sort of seemed like it was really emblematic of something about this strange present moment that we're living through, um, at least in the kind of overdeveloped West. So that was something that I, I read and I just kept... It just wouldn't, you know, leave me this idea. And then I guess the other thing was I just really wanted to write a book about... Um, a contemporary story. Um, my first book was historical and I just was, you know, wanting to wrestle with the time that we live in. Um, I wanted to write about travel. So all of those things, I guess, sort of came together. It probably wasn't so much, you know, like the, the young men and that, you know, hospitality environment and stuff. Because I was in it, it didn't probably strike me as something that was... A great idea to write about it was like I don't want to th think about this and it was more you know as I developed it that it it actually was very fortunate that I had spent all this time around young men because it kind of made me feel like at least I could kind of have a crack at you know writing um, a young man's experience because that was <laughs> what I had been around all the time for 90 hours a week <laughs> for two yeah. years you may as well make use of that 90 exactly. hours a week <laughs> Um, and Diana, what about you? What was it like writing a novel set in an Australian university campus, having just been, you know, fresh out of graduating? Is, was this a story that you felt like you wanted to write or did it sort of write itself in a way? Yeah, I think... Um, so the book's not... Um, it's not autobiographical insofar as, like, I'm... My personal life is not nothing like the narrator's, but um, the university that it's set on is, like, a, a fictionalised version of the uni I went to. Um, and I think that that is... Um, yeah, I think that that definitely was a huge influence and I hadn't really written creatively at uni um, and so I think all of those kind of like social observations that I'd made while I was there were obviously like locked up <laughs> somewhere and then when I when I started to write I guess it, yeah I think it was like six years worth of observations kind of just poured out of me um, but yeah I think the reason I wanted to write that book was a sort of twofold one was that I, as a reader, I really like reading campus novels. So, like, some of my favourite books are, like, The Secret History by Donna Tartt or Brideshead Revisited. And um, I wasn't conscious of there being an Australian campus novel. Um, and so I guess I sort of tried to write the book that I wanted to read. Um, and then also when I, when I was at uni, I had this sort of kind of dis disjoined experience where when I was studying philosophy, I felt like, the more I studied, the more um, morally grey kind of questions of ethics became. Like, I would start a subject with a really clear idea of right and wrong, and then after reading and learning more, by the end, I would just have no idea what I thought anymore. But then I felt like on campus, and especially on social media, people were talking about real-life ethical issues in increasingly black-and-white terms. So, yeah, I think that was kind of the, the culture that I wanted to write about, and I wanted to sort of see if I could use the form of a novel to tease out, um, yeah, to take issues that might seem black and white and see if I could find the grey. Thank you. Um, so both of these novels have been called coming-of-age stories. Um, and before we get into the, the why of that in terms of the narrative, I'd love to talk a little bit about the term coming-of-age. So as you both know from our chats recently, um, the coming-of-age is a for me, a, a sort of contentious term because I feel like it often denotes that journey that comes to an end and then you're an adult and you sort of move into the world um, knowing everything. But as you just said, we don't know anything, especially the more we learn. Um, and in my PhD that I did a few years ago, I posited the idea of a coming of awareness, which is more like we're constantly growing and evolving and changing and, and we go through experiences that change us, but then there's never necessarily an end of the journey. But, of course, that's not really publishable or marketable in terms of, like, a narrative because readers need um, a sense of an ending, right? So 
what, how do you feel about the coming of age um, for your characters and for yourselves? Like, I mean, you can talk about your lives if you want, but I mean, what does the coming of age mean to you in the sense of like that trope that we all know so well? Fight it out. Um, I think, so one of the things that I wanted to explore in writing Wild Abandoned was not so much the coming of age trope, but I think something that sort of overlaps that, which is the kind of idea of the quest narrative, which is usually a young man's, you know, it is a coming of age story often, um, but I think... I sort of take issue with similar things in that idea of the kind of quest narrative, particularly the masculine quest narrative, as I do in the coming-of-age narrative in that, um, yeah, I think it's totally <laughs> false to kind of expect that, you know, you have a story. And, and, you know, this trope goes back to the very, very earliest kind of literature. We have the, you know, the young man goes out into the world to seek his fortune in a fairy tale or whatever it is and kind of comes back transformed, usually a, a prince. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just such a sort of misleading narrative and particularly, I think, in for me, in the, you know, more contemporary forms that, of that sort of tale, which would be something like Kerouac's On the Road, um, where, you know, the young man kind of goes out into the world and essentially kind of leaves a trail of destruction in his wake in the quest for his own kind of realisation or epiphany or kind of experience or whatever. Um, and, yeah, that, that was something that I wanted to kind of critique in a way because it doesn't acknowledge the, you know, subjectivity and experience of all of the people that they kind of encounter. They, in a very, um, you know, Joseph Campbell-y sort of way, you'll have the guide and the, you know, the antagonist and the helper and the blah, 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 but, um, and they all sort of function as these extras on the, you know, stage set of the hero's kind of journey. But in reality, they are all on their own <laughs> journeys. They all have their own experience. And, um, yeah, so that's that was probably what I was kind of really keen to debunk in this, as well as that idea that, you know, you can simply move from innocence to experience um, on an overseas trip and come back transformed. But I think it's, it is a really powerful um, myth because I think, you know, like, I had that idea when I had my first overseas trip and I think, you know, it's a very um, seductive idea that you can be transformed and, and solve all your problems and come back an adult or something. And before I move to Diana, just quickly, do you feel like Will comes of age in the story um, as a result of what he goes through? I don't think so. I mean, I sort of... I didn't want to you know, show really the, you know, the outcome of his experience. So he sort of goes through some pretty intense experiences and then, you know, in a sense the narrative just kind of cuts that off um, and then there's another kind of coda that sort of ends things in quite a different way. Um, so I deliberately wanted to sort of frustrate that um, for the reader, that idea of how he is changed by this um, and just to kind of gesture to the fact that he will be dealing with these experiences for a long time but it's not at all certain, you know, how he will kind of assimilate those and whether they will kind of change him for the better or the worse even, yeah. And I think that can be... That sort of open end can be really powerful too because it gives the reader agency to think about all the things that Will has been through and then figure out for themselves what they think happens next, which is great. Um, and Diana, what does the coming of age mean to you or to your characters and to your novel in general? Yeah. Um, I think um, it's interesting. I think that the coming of age um, that... Uh, yeah, I think my understanding of coming of age is um, probably... I guess it's like... Um, defined kind of in contrast to what Will goes through, which is, and I think this is a point that Wild Abandon makes, the idea that um, it's not enough just to experience things you have in order to change. You have to, um, like, think about them, and there's so much inner work 
And I think that's because, like, that's what happens to Will is he sort of has this quite literal idea of what a journey is and it's, like, moving from physical place to place. And then he has to realise that, like, the journey that's going to actually change him is the kind of psychological one and he's so reluctant to take that journey. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that was something I was thinking about when I was writing Love and Virtue. Um, there was this... I'd read this really interesting article about this trend in literature that they were calling the reflexivity trap, which is the idea that... Um, a lot of like a lot of sort of classic novels that deal with coming of age, like for example, just to take like a sort of obvious one, like in Jane Austen's Emma, Emma is this character who starts off very arrogant, and then by the end of the book, she's humbled, and the reader like can see that she's actually she's a different person than she was at the beginning. And then they were sort of saying in a lot of contemporary literature um, and in the genre that I think my book sits under, so like the sort of Rooney-inspired books. The, the moment of change is just that the characters have this moment of self-awareness and they're like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. But then they don't necessarily do anything about that. Um, and I think that's really interesting because that does pose this question of, um, like, I guess you could almost think of our books as, like, on a scale. Like, I think that, in, that your protagonist doesn't get to that point of self-awareness yeah. and he refuses to have that moment of being like, I'm a bad person. And then I think in my book there are a lot of people who do get to that point, but then it's sort of a question of, well, what do you do after that point? And like that's almost enough. Yeah, well, for and they think it's enough. They think it's enough, and I think that there are characters in my book who um, are very self-aware, and they're almost self-aware to a fault because they think that that's enough. Like um, the philosophy professor is probably a good example of this because he's very, um, like, he's very academically incisive and he understands morals in this very like textbook way and so he understands that what he's doing is wrong but that's not enough to make him stop doing it so yeah I think that I don't sorry I don't know if that answers your question I think that coming of age is an internal experience um, and that's why like novels are so good at narrativizing it because you can get inside people's heads and I think that it is a like that is such a big question of how do you not just live through things, but live through them and think about them. And then once you've thought about them, change your behaviour. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, a lot of, uh, Emily, you mentioned this before about like that masculine kind of quest and the hero's journey. And a lot of these traditional coming of age novels that we've seen and read over the years, like Catcher in the Rye and On the Road, as you mentioned, they're very masculine. Um, and that was the, the hero's journey was the masculine journey of leaving that relative privilege and comfort of home and going out and having experiences and maybe, you know, having a bit of sex and then coming back and, like, being a real man. Um, and I know, Emily, you've spoken before about how you read a lot of those books um, in your, you know, early years, but then also while writing this and that you, as a female reader, felt really intrigued but also excluded by that idea. So I'm interested in um, your decision to write from that masculine perspective um, did you ever think about writing from a female perspective and flipping the trope on its head or would it not have worked narratively? I did think about that but it just, it wouldn't have worked in terms of the actual story. You know, once I knew that I was kind of setting um, the story partly in this, uh, you know, private zoo of exotic animals, uh, it just would have been, it wouldn't have rung true, it didn't ring true to me to have a young sort of female traveller going into that environment. And I think, you know, once I decided on that, I, you know, it opened up the possibility of, you know, not writing the alternative, but writing the trope itself, but trying to kind of undermine it in, in other ways from within. So I sort of tried to do that by the, you know, the ending, as I talked about, but also other sort of things within the perspective of the novel to, you know, undermine that, um, that sense that everyone that the protagonist meets is a kind of bit part in their journey. So I sort of have these little moments where we, we kind of see him from other characters' perspectives, as an example, um, as a way of, you know, trying to kind of sort of write a version of that quest narrative, but one that, you know, draws attention to the things that, that I think are kind of problematic about that trope. It's funny that you say um, that it probably wouldn't have worked with a female perspective. I have a, a distinct memory of reading the, the bit in New York City and there's this one scene where Will um, 
walks home in the early hours of the morning with Paul and I like my whole body reacted to that and I remember feeling like oh I'd probably get in a taxi you know um all the sleeping in parks like I don't think yeah it would be hard to like relax and fall asleep for me in a park in New York City (laughs) yeah totally and I mean that's part of what that experience I had as a young reader was as well of like it's um a luxury to feel sort of safe to just journey out into the world on your own and not have to worry constantly about your physical safety. And I, I feel like, um, you know, even as a, a young 20-something, when you may be making adventurous decisions that you wouldn't make later on in life, I, I still don't think that I would have ended up working at a private zoo in Ohio, as much as I would like to think that maybe I would, just for the story, but I just don't think so. So I think it's definitely a that masculine journey, that romanticised journey. Um, so... Diana, I know that you and I love um, campus novels and I was really excited to read Love and Virtue when it, when it landed because I read the back and I was like, cool, this is right up my alley. Um, and we have those, like, you know, Normal People by Sally Rooney and The Secret History by Donna Tartt, but we don't really have many Australian examples. So do you think, like, did you set out to write an Australian example because you love those campus novels or, um, you know, like, what does the Australian version look like? It looks like Love and Virtue, but, like, you know, more generally speaking... Yeah, it's interesting. I did, uh, yeah, I, uh, that is definitely why I set out to write it because I do love, I do love campus novels and um, I think where like Emily's book sort of it takes a genre and undermines it, I think my book is just like repeating the same genre. Like it's sort of, it's just a straight up campus novel. Like the book starts at the start of the academic year. There's a break halfway through, which is when they go on holidays and then it ends towards the end of the academic year. <laughs> like that's like your like paradigmatic campus novel. Um and I think that, yeah, it's interesting, I suppose. the I think the Australian-ness of it is probably... Um, it probably comes out in the way that I think why universities are interesting is because they are, I think, microcosms of broader Australian life. And I think that especially when you think of universities in terms of privilege, um, they can... If, yeah, I think if you think of if you think of universities as the place where sort of the future leaders of Australia are being raised, then that means that whatever values these people kind of inherit or develop while they're at uni are the values that will then go on to be played out nationally. Um, and I do think that kind of was borne out in. Um, like my book was published only a few months after the um, sort of consent came into the national conversation and we saw what was happening in Australian Parliament and I think it's not too hard to kind of join the dots between what goes on in these rooms, in these cloistered places, in private institutions and then the kind of cultural values that we all have to grapple with no matter where you live or work in Australia. Yeah. It is really interesting that both of your novels um, have that crossover in terms of you both sort of uh, take from those offshore tropes that we have like we've got the the road trip journey um, in in yours wild abandon and then the campus novel um, so I love I loved being able to read the Australianized version of both of those even though wild abandon is in America it's an Australian character which is um, was really cool um, and another beautiful crossover between your two books in terms of theme I think was the idea of male friendships and, and female friendships um, and I couldn't help but feel like when I was reading them both, there's a fine line between love and respect um, of a friend, but then also bitterness or resentment or competition between some of your characters. Like in Love and Virtue, for example, we've got Michaela and Eve, Eva, Eve, yeah. Eve, yeah. Um, and they're like they have quite a tense friendship, and it's at the centre of the novel. It's almost like frenemies by the end of it. Um, so. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a little passage from the opening, um, one of my favourite bits. I think this really speaks to that tension. So it's right at the beginning of the book and Michaela is imagining um, Eve being hit by a car. So it's weird that I'm calling it beautiful, but it is. (laughs) Um, So amid the heat and the rubbery smoke and the sirens, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't feel the tiniest flash of glee, that I still feel so much, that her suffering thrills me and her success cruels me, that I cannot just get over it, but instead insist on resenting her. It all suggests to me that in spite of everything, I'm still a bit in love with her. So what interests you about female friendships in that way? Yeah, I I always feel sort of guilty 
because I feel like the female friendship in my book is so toxic and um, <laughs> I, you know, have so many lovely female friendships in my life that are very formative and <laughs> not like that at all. So, yeah, I was a bit worried. I was like, oh, gosh, have I killed feminism um, by being like, yeah, like, oh, like, I want to watch her get run over by a car. That'll be awesome. Um, yeah, uh, so I think, I, I suppose what, I think what happens to Michaela and Eve in this book is very much informed by their environment and I think it's because they are sort of positioned to compete with each other and so on the one hand they're these two very bright young women who get on really well because they're both quite intelligent and ambitious and so yeah they have a lot of points of connection and they feel like they understand each other but they also um, have this sense that they need to be better than the other one um, and I think that is rooted in respect because they they admire each other and they want to they want to emulate each other but then i think it's sort of pushed to this point where emulating it becomes instead replacing like they want to um they want to surpass each other um and i think that that is probably in their context informed um by the fact that they sort of are in this very heteronormative environment where male attention is sort of very important so they i think they sort of feel like they need to, um, like, there's only room for one of them and that, you know, that, yeah, they need to, um, yeah, so they feel like if they're not the one who's getting the most attention or if they're not the one who's getting all the prizes and they're not doing well. Um, I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's the case, obviously, with all female friendships. Um, I also think it's something that maybe happens a lot when you're younger and you're just, like, lacking that bit of maturity where um, you can't distinguish between, like, wanting to be like someone versus wanting to just be them and, like, have their life. Um, yeah, I feel like maybe that happens a bit in your book with Will and Paul. I feel like their dynamic is, like, there can only be one alpha in the room and so Will kind of, like, resents that if Paul's in the room then he's not the alpha. Is that...? I don't know. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And I think that's probably more often the case with maybe I don't know although I think it's interesting in the you know uni environment because I, th I feel like I observed that a lot among young women where it's a sort of intellectual competitiveness that is I think you know like a product of being in that very masculine space where you know it, it is the kind of male attention but also the attempt to um, you know break away from that and establish yourself as, you know, um, a brain <laughs> rather than just a body and so that can kind of create its own sort of competitiveness or... Yeah, and I guess there's this, like, paranoia that, well, if one woman's succeeding, then where's, there's no room for me, you know? So, like, you've, you need to be the woman who's succeeding. Um, yeah, because yeah. there's probably only room for one on the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> quota. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think... Um, with Paul and Will, you can... So, um, context is that Paul is Will's older brother's best friend from childhood who kind of bullied Will a little bit and then um, Will stays with him in New York City and I feel like you get this real sense from Will that he looks up to Paul but he also still thinks he's a bit of a dickhead but he still, like, thinks that Paul is cooler than him because I think he sort of thinks that everyone's cooler than him in that insecurity that he's got. Um, and so it's interesting that the masculine version of that versus the female version of that in, in your novel. And something else, um, Emily, in Wild Abandon that I thought was really interesting was Will and his, um, his relationship to the women in his life as well. And he, I feel like he sort of sees women as these fascinating creatures who are kind of better than him in a way and that he can never be, like, amongst them. You know, you have that um, beautiful line where he... He says that he feels like an outsider because of their unceasing, impassioned female conversation that he can't quite, you know, shoulder his way into. And um, he has, you know, some troubling ideas about his mum and his ex-girlfriend and then his um, best friend, his friend from high school who he stays with in Ohio for a little bit. Um, and that all of them in some way trigger his fragile ego. So why do you think that is and, and what made you interested in getting into the mind of an early 20-something young man um, and his views on the women in his life? Um, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think probably why I became interested in, you know, getting into the mind of a young man was, was 
partly just because I was in that kind of environment where I was working with a lot of young men. Um, but I think, you know, in my first novel, The Strays, I was really interested in female friendship. I was writing about female friendship. And um, I guess having sort of had that in the back of my mind, one of the things that, that I sort of started thinking about when I started trying to, you know, put myself into the shoes of a young man is what it would be like as a young man to see, you know, and witness the strength of kind of those female friendships that I think, um, you know, I could be wrong, let's ask any young men here, but could potentially feel very sort of excluding. Um, it's like one sphere that you just cannot get into, um, no matter how much kind of privilege you have in other areas, because um, it's just something that, that young men can kind of be shut out of, or men at any age, I think, that women, I, I have experience of this definitely that women talk differently amongst themselves um to when there is another uh, when, there, when there's a man in the room and the, they have a different way of kind of talking about their lives together they you know are sort of often more sharing emotionally um and yeah i think I just sort of thought that that as a you know aware in some ways young man in some ways he's not aware at all but he he has observed that he did have a girlfriend in Melbourne and he sort of has been on the sort of periphery of these groups of women talking and sees that they talk in a different way and that he cannot really be a part of that um, and yeah it just sort of struck me as something quite interesting that 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 is not a possibility for him. He can't really do anything to, to get into that circle. It's closed to him. I love um, that idea that he really does feel like an outsider in that way, and he feels like an outsider in so many ways. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little passage, which I think um, is a great example of that. So this is when Will is um, applying for a, a flat share housemate situation in Melbourne. Um, and, he, and it says, and he dressed the part in his new skinny black jeans, short in the leg so that a band of pale ankle was exposed above the formal brown shoes he had paid an exorbitant sum for in a vintage store for the service of having them accredited as acceptable in all their details of colour, chestnut, not chocolate brown, and shape, long and tapered at the toe, but definitely not squared off at the tip like those college boys wore out to the clubs announcing their cluelessness, and shine, high, and lace type, thin, round... He wore a white shirt and over his shoulder was slung a brown leather satchel of a shade equivalent to his shoes but with a battered matte finish. I just love that because I just, I really, that really speaks to me. Um, and there's a real anxiousness and a self-consciousness to Will all the way through um, and I think that really lends itself to the outsider perspective. And then Michaela's also kind of an outsider as well because she's moved to, um, you know, Sydney, uh, whatever the fictional college is, um, and feels a little bit like this is a whole new world and everyone is a bit cooler and a bit smoother than her and maybe a bit more privileged. And um, so I think there's a really the cool crossover there. And I'd love to ask you about misogyny. Um, it's a really powerful theme, I feel like, in both of your novels, but maybe a little subtle and understated. Like, I don't know if you'd have a byline on the front that said exploring misogyny, but it's definitely in there. Um, and Diana, would you like to speak to that idea a little bit in Love and Virtue? How did that come through for you? Yeah, sure. I think, um, yeah, I think misogyny is, um, yeah, I think what, I, what interested me really was the way that your, I was interested in writing about the way that your social environment can shape your moral thinking. Um, and that's why I chose to write in like quite a closed environment, so a college. Um, and I think that misogyny is like such a, loaded term and it's like a pretty extraordinary thing because misogyny means that you hate women which means that you like have contempt for like half the planet which is like and so I think that it, when you if you were to accuse someone of being a misogynist that seems like on the face of it just almost like patently ridiculous like how how could you possibly have so much contempt for so many people um and so I think what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of reveal 
uh, I suppose I, I wanted to create a social world where through um, constant and subtle degradations, women kind of experience the environment differently to men, um, which is not to say that like each individual man in the book is a misogynist. I don't think that's true at all. But I think it they live in an environment where behaviour becomes normalised that enables them to treat women in a way that does not... Um, that is not respectful of them. And so they can, on the one hand, rationally think that they respect women very much, but then they can also behave in a way that doesn't reflect that at all and not ever be, I guess, like, called out for it. Um, and I think that, yeah, if... Um, yeah, so their behaviour yeah, their behaviour is inconsistent with their values is a short way to answer that. Um and yeah, I think that um that was I, I think that we're probably all guilty of that, of behaving in ways that are inconsistent with our values. And I think that what I wanted to point out was the way that often our behaviour is not guided by what we like rationally think to be true or good. Rather it's guided by the way everyone else around us behaves. Um, and so if you're in an environment that endorses a particular way of treating people, that can just very quickly become normalised to you. Yeah. Yeah, you've definitely done that really well. And, and I love that you've weaved your, obviously, studies of philosophy through the book as well because the people who are learning about the, the morality and good versus bad tend to behave in pretty questionable ways and there's a real tension there, isn't there? Yeah, and I think... Um, I think that's important because I think that I, I think particularly in um, modern kind of conversations around morality, especially like on social media, I think there's this sense that like if you've got the right vocabulary and you can sort of throw around terms in with a particular level of sophistication, then that means that you're like woke and you're a good person. And I think that what I sort of hope to reveal with this book is that being a good person is just really hard and it's something that everyone struggles with and you can do all the reading and you can know all the right words and you can think all the right thoughts and you can still, like, hurt people or, yeah, behave in um, a bad way. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's the end of that sentence. <laughs> great, great answer. Um, and, Emily, in Wild Abandon, there is also a bit of an exploration of what makes someone good or bad person when it comes to the, the section in Ohio when he's... Um, when Will starts working for Wayne Gage, the Vietnam vet with the exotic zoo that you talked about. So um, I know you mentioned Tiger King before and that you were pissed off <laughs> when it came out at the beginning of 2020. So just to lead into that question, like what was that like actually? You know, suddenly you'd been working on this book for a while and um, suddenly the whole world was captivated by this Tiger King story and and, you know, the keeping of exotic animals and the legality of that and what makes someone a good or a bad person. You know, you've got the, the Joe Exotic, you know, diehards, but then you've got the Carabaskan diehards. And although your book is not based on Joe Exotic, there is that, you know, good versus bad kind of element. So you were pissed off, but would you like to talk more about that? Yeah, at first I was pissed off, but then I kind of... Um, I came around to thinking that maybe it was sort of a good in a way because well I it sort of as I said it it meant that people were familiar with this as a phenomenon and I think um you know I I wonder actually whether you know without that people would even believe that this was a real thing you know um I, I sort of mentioned in my session this morning there was a an estimate at some point that there were more tigers in American um, homes and backyards than there were in the wild. Um, and, you know, that that is really, really shocking to me. Um, and, yeah, so I think the other thing that it just reinforced for me, I guess, when Tiger King came out is that there is something really fascinating, not just about the world of people that keep these animals, but about, you know, the animals themselves and that, you know, what is behind people kind of wanting to have, a, you know, a tiger as a pet. Um, and I think, you know, I 100% do not think tigers should be pets, but I, I definitely think, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time observing um, animals while I was writing the book, and I think there's something, you know, undeniably, like, magical about, 
you know, being close to an animal that is has the potential to kill you if you, you know, were actually in the cage with it. And um, not just those animals, you know, I think there's something that I was trying to sort of think through um, in writing this about our human relationship to our own status as animals, um, to ideas of, you know, a kind of connection to nature or, or to something kind of wild that I think, you know, is part of what drives people to want to have close encounters with these kinds of animals or, you know, do things like go out into kind of wilderness areas. I think in our incredibly sort of over-civilised society, um, there's, you know, a craving for a kind of contact with wildness in some sort of form and I think um, that was kind of what I wanted to explore. And Wayne, you know, the guy that has these animals, he's a troubled guy, you know, he was in the Vietnam War um, and he... Something else, I think, that, that um, animals and the kind of contact with animals can kind of provide to humans is a sort of sense of solace that, you know, you can't necessarily get from other humans if you are that sort of damaged. And, you know, again, all of those things, I think, were just sort of swirling around in my head. Um, but I think, you know, I, I sort of think of Wild Abandon in a way, I don't think it has really been kind of talked about this in this way much, but I sort of think of it as an eco-novel in a way because it's it's not... Uh, a post-apocalyptic novel it's not kind of an environment novel but it's sort of looking at like why we are going to um, destroy ourselves which is this kind of incredible victory of capitalism and consumerism and and you know the kind of owning of wild animals is to me sort of like the end point of that it's like how more much more extreme can you get than to own you know 18 tigers and 15 lions and it's just unbelievable it's inconceivable um and yet there's another side of it that's you know that's sort of wanting something other than than you know what kind of capitalism gives us it's wanting a connection to something wild and just to carry on with that idea for a second, um, you have the two sections in your book, both called America, which I think is fascinating because the first one is when Will's in New York City and it's just, you know, he's on a bender and it's all just like sex and drugs and delicious food and he, and like the abundance of New York City really comes through really poetically. But then you have Will running out of money and, and going to this small town in Ohio and ending up in the situation that he's in. So, you wrote so lyrically about both of those sections, which was, by the way, a joy to read during lockdown when you can't go anywhere. Um, and pre-pandemic, what did the research process look like for you? Did you spend time in Ohio at all? Yeah, I went to um, to the US. I'd been to New York a few times, um, not replicating <laughs> Will's <laughs> incredibly self-absorbed um, experience. Um but, yeah, I did... I actually was really fortunate to get some funding from um, Melbourne Uni to, to do a research trip, and I went to Ohio to the town that was kind of the town in the book was is, based on. Sorry, can I ask a question? Is Little Proud a made-up name of a town? Yeah. Because, yeah, I was wondering, because I was like, oh, it represents, like, his humbling and Little <laughs> Proud. <laughs> it was that, so that was intentional. Yeah, like, but there was also, like, some really amazingly kind of named towns in, in Ohio, in kind of rural Ohio, um, and it, I was sort of looking for something that sort of replicated the feeling of those sort of town names, which uh, I can't, none of them are coming to me now, but sort of these really um, sort of mythological sort of names. Um, so, you know, even though Little Proud seems very... Mythological. It's actually kind of similar to yeah, which was really interesting. Um, yeah, so I got to spend some time with you know around lions and tigers, and um, went to a, like a sanctuary that was mainly because by the time I went there, the, the laws had kind of changed partly as a result of the incident that kind of inspired the book, which I will not go into. Um, uh, but there was this big sanctuary that had a lot of kind of rescued or surrendered. Um, animals and yeah like they were sort of there with a little wire fence in between and that was amazing so yeah the research was great 
and your time at uni. <laughs> your... <laughs> Got to make something good out of it. Um, so speaking of that kind of research process or less research and more just ideas, um, I would love to know, did you, when, Diana, when you were writing the book, did you have a greater sense of the themes that you wanted to portray? Um, like, did you ever imagine that you'd be sitting here talking about feminism and power and consent and all those kind of things? Or did you, was it more about the story that you wanted to tell? Um, yeah, well, I didn't imagine that I'd be sitting here. I, like, genuinely didn't think it was going to be published. Um, so I didn't imagine this. But, yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely started with themes. The, um, what, one of the big themes in the book is about consent. And um, it's, it sort of looks at consent in the context of sex and, like, bodily autonomy. But then it also looks at consent in um, terms of consent to tell your own story and... Um, like to what extent you are entitled to kind of author the narrative of your own life. Um, and that is um, at one point in the book, someone's story gets taken and someone else passes it off as their own. So when I, when I started writing, I, that was the bit of the story that I started with. So like I didn't know, I didn't really know any of the other beats of the plot, but I knew that there were going to be, um, that one friend was going to take another one's story. And I had um, the... Yeah, I had a character in mind. Um, so really yeah, I w- that's oh, that just, that's really interesting. What was it? Can I <laughs> can I just take over? Yeah. Please do. What was it about that like idea that kind of captured you of someone taking someone else's story? Um, I think I just liked it because I thought it was a good way to kind of problematize consent and sort of clarify why consent is important in any context um, and therefore also in a sexual context because I just sort of thought that that kind of experience of being able to be the author of your own life and to sort of manage your own reputation is so core to, like, who we are. And I thought that even if you were someone who perhaps was, like, a bit exhausted with the public conversation around, like, sex and consent... I thought you could probably read that and, like, imagine that violation. I just thought that seems like such a human thing because no matter, like, what our sexual lives are like, everybody um, has a kind of narrative of their own life and they feel entitled to tell it. Um, So, yeah, I think that was... And I also thought that was a good idea to explore in a novel just, I guess, for, like, wanky reasons because, like, I was like, oh, that's quite meta because books are books are about telling stories and like and we all tell stories all the time so yeah and there is that great crossover as well with that coming of age we were talking about earlier um in that like will you know on his hero's journey he is attempting to write his own story like he wants to be the author of his own story and he wants his story to look different to the way he's grown up like he's running away from everything that he's known to rewrite it into something else and i think that's kind of what we can crave when we're that age as well of your protagonist in love and virtue um so emily same question did you you said that you had kind of seen wild abandoned as an eco novel did you think that you'd be sitting at writers festivals talking about toxic masculinity is that something that you planned <laughs> in the theme no definitely not <laughs> i think um it's really interesting listening to you talking about your process diana because i think you know obviously your ideas and themes were kind of right up at the forefront of your mind. I mean, I guess it was like that for me to a certain extent, but um, I think I was a lot more muddled about what those themes were at the start and it was just sort of writing my way into the story that made those kind of emerge for me, I think. I I think I tend to be fairly unconscious about what the themes are at, at the start, but at the same time I quite, like, I, I sort of value that in a way as a process as well. Like, I think um, I sort of trust my unconscious mind to do a lot of those kind of behind-the-scenes drawing of connections and that the, the themes will sort of become clear... Uh, or that I will weave certain things in uh, without being necessarily aware of it and that that's a, a process that kind of works. But I think I also think that's kind of the way that people like to read. Like, I think that if you start with a theme and a point and then you write to that with no, like, exploration, 
then the outcome will probably be quite didactic. And, like, I personally don't like reading books which are just, like, telling me how I should be thinking. No. Like, I think that's... Yeah, I think that it's nice for the reader to kind of have, like, connections revealed to them that, that you, without it sort of being so overt. Yeah, and I guess, you know, there's a difference as well in terms of the content of our novels, like, you're writing explicitly about young people who are studying philosophy and trying to wrestle with big abstract ideas, which is, yeah, it's a really interesting topic for fiction. Like you say, it's kind of got all of those sort of meta, um, you know, connections to storytelling and, yeah, yeah it's really interesting. Look at these two. What a dream team. <laughs> Just bouncing off each other, making my job so easy. Um, do you ever wonder where Michaela and Will are now? I wonder where Will is. Yeah, <laughs> I was giving. I'll save it for everybody. But there's like you're given like a, a, a tease of his future at the very end. It's like one sentence, and that really wet my appetite. I was like, I was like, but what's he doing? Yeah. Um, I would love a sequel to your book. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. I don't. Wor- I don't wonder about Michaela. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think no. I, that's sorry. That's a short answer. I don't really worry about where she is now. Maybe it's because I, I know she's made up. So, um, <laughs> well, maybe I, because you're so deep in what's next now, you let her go. One thing that keeps me up at night is I don't know what degree Balthazar does, <laughs> and I still wonder. <laughs> you should do like an Instagram poll of that or something, and yeah. ask your readers. I reckon maybe maths or anyway. That's uh, we talk, uh, that's for me to decide later, <laughs> or um, for the readers to decide. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of readers, uh, everybody is. Uh, if you haven't already, they're all going to go down to the bookshop. They're going to buy your books. They're going to come and have them signed. So um, what advice would you have to readers before delving into the worlds of your novels, if any? Oh, I, I wouldn't presume to advise. I'd just say thank you so much for buying my book. Same. <laughs> it's very humble. And if, you, yeah, if you'd like to recommend it to a friend, then, then please, please do so. I would also say, uh, if you hate the New York section, it's only a third of the book. It'll get really different in the next, <laughs> in the next yeah. section. The wild animals are coming, I promise. <laughs> um, I, sorry, can I say, I'm, now I'm just like fangirling. I love that about the... I just thought that was so clever that he, like... I, I just loved that he started this journey and it was sort of like in one genre and then he ended up somewhere completely different and I felt like as a reader, like, I, in the same way that Will went to America with preconceived ideas of what that journey looked like, I opened the book with a preconceived idea of what, like, someone's American journey was. And for the first third, I was like, yep, this is it. Like, that's what happens. And then I was, like, completely thrown off. In, yeah. It's actually been interesting. I feel like um, there's... Most people who read it seem to really prefer one part or the other, but sort of about half-half prefer each, which sort of makes me feel okay about that. <laughs> yeah, that's like, actually a perfect balance, isn't it? And we were just... I was everyone just hates one part. But <laughs> <laughs> At least they like the other half. Um, no, I was just saying to Emily earlier that if you had no idea what Wild Abandoned was about and you just read the first bit, you would have no idea what was coming, which I think is so exciting like it's that's, really cool it's like life you know exactly it's like will's journey he doesn't know what's coming just bringing it back around to that beautiful coming of age trope <laughs> we never know what's ahead of us um we're almost out of time and i just have one more question and i'm sh- i'm sorry if it causes anxiety but i'm sure everyone is also wondering what's happening next for you both um so i've written a second book for my publisher ultimo press um and it yeah, I'm, I was told not to say much more than that. So, yeah, so it exists. <laughs> um, and it's going to come out, I think, towards the end of this year. Yep. That's a very exciting tease. <laughs> and I have an equally vague response, which is that I'm still not really sure what I'm doing next. I'm still kind of feeling around in the dark. Um, yeah, not quite ready to dive in yet. That's really exciting and also like that kind of open-ended coming-of-age journey never really ends. You don't know what's next, right? (laughs) Doesn't get any easier to write a book, that's for sure. (laughs) 
That concludes our session today. Um, thank you all so much for being here and thank you to You've Been a Dream. Um, you can follow these two down to the Festival Bookshop. They'll be signing books. Um, but please join me in thanking Emily and Diana. It's been an absolute pleasure. Your books are fantastic. I loved them both. I'm sure everyone else will. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming. I hope you enjoyed listening to this session, which was recorded at the 2022 Festival. Save the date for our 10th event, coming up from March 31 to April 2, 2023. Stories to you.